One thing I didn't discuss last week, uh, didn't put it in there because we run out of time, but when you did a search on the word truth in the New Testament, um, I don't know if you were able to locate them all or if you used a concordance at the back of your at the back of your Bible, but um, here's a search from my e-Bible, what I came up with. And you might note that in John's writings, he, more than any other author, uses the word true or truth. You see on the screen here in the Gospel, uh, 26 times for the word truth, 19 for the word true. And then uh, Revelation and First John, Second, uh, Third John, he uses it quite a bit. So, 54 occurrences of the word true, 110 occurrences of the word truth. You get the idea. The truth is pretty important to the, to the New Testament writers and to the Lord Jesus. Okay, that was free, no charge. Okay, so here are the questions for this week um, that you uh, will turn in here. Were, were there any issues you wanted to bring up or discuss? Before I collect them, anything that you found to be a, a big revelation to your knowledge, store of knowledge? Nobody? All right. Well, then uh, we'll continue on here. <clears throat> One thing that, as I was reading through the book, the author's use this acronym JTB, Justification, Justified True Belief. And so, I guess we would use the acronym because belief is the noun and justified true are the adjectives. We put our adjectives for the noun. But the way it's spelled out in the formula there is belief, justification, and truth. That's kind of the way it, it's, it's presented in the book and the way we would we would probably arrive at knowledge kind of in a sort of a orderly fashion. We have a belief, then we may try to justify it. But the thing that that I thought was kind of curious, and I understand the, the, the writers are laying it out the way it came to be historically, but it seems like truth is the thing that we're actually after. Okay, so we've, we've got truth, but if truth is leading to knowledge, then what more, what more do we gain once we get to the truth part? And if we have truth, um, it, it seems a little bit circular, I guess is what I'm saying. So, <clears throat> it's more like the knowledge we gain is through reason, experience, testimony, and revelation, those things feed into our store of knowledge. And that's what the chapter that's coming up is going to discuss. Um, there's, a, there's a YouTube channel called Closer to Truth. And a fellow named Robert Kuhn is a brilliant guy. I don't know what his background is, but he's very articulate in a number of areas. And he interviews atheists and Christians um, William Lane Craig, and T. Wright. He's interviewed all these different people on various subjects. And uh, like, like Larry King, the late Larry King, he really knows how to 
conduct an interview and to uh, make people feel comfortable. He doesn't intimidate people. You don't know where he stands, which is good for an interviewer. Um, anyway, if you look at uh, the YouTube channel Closer to Truth, you may find some good discussion there on some deep deep subjects. And then, of course, uh, <coughs> there's a way not to get so close to the truth. All right, we've got to have a chuckle, right? I think I'll make sure you're awake. <laughs> Pastor Drew. I had a, actually, and I, I think I understood this maybe more as I got through into the chapter a little bit more, but at the start of the chapter, he's talking about... Um, Is this chapter two or chapter yeah, three? Chapter two. Okay. So he's talking about... Um, the whole JCB thing and, and all that, and um, just the whole idea of like belief and knowledge. And he says that um, at the, towards the right at the end of that second paragraph, there, when we believe something, we must recognize that beliefs can be wrong or mistaken. Thus, claiming that we know something seems to suggest something more significant than saying that we believe something. And I, I, I just didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. Because when I when I first, and I think I understood it more as I got through the chapter, but when I first read it, I thought, don't you, mean, don't you mean the opposite? Don't you mean that it's more significant to believe something than to know? Like, when I think about knowledge, I, I think of, okay, like, I, I, I know the grass is green. But, like, I, that doesn't matter, you know? Like, but when I think about something I believe... That to me is much more significant. I, I don't think I disagree with them, but I just it kind of struck me as a little bit. Yeah, I I had I had a similar thought, actually. But I think what he's doing he's he's just talking belief in the broadest general sense. You know, I believe that um, you know my my car needs filling up with gas before I drive very far, whereas. We were thinking, you were thinking, belief is uh, almost a commitment to a uh, right to something. I mean, I yeah, perspective, to like, believe is to trust and right. to have a a level of confidence. Right. Yeah. But I guess then at the, at the end of the day, I was thinking about like, okay, um, claiming that I know, like if I, I don't know, if I know something. Um, to be true, that implies that I believe that it's true, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, so that that's kind of what made me think. Okay, maybe he's right. I mean, maybe it, maybe it is more significant. Um, but I, I guess as Christians, we're so used to thinking of belief. They believe, I and mean, that's salvation. You know, these things are that you might believe that Jesus Christ. I mean, that's so important. And so that, that was just that was just an observation. About yeah, and quite often the expression is used head belief versus heart belief. Mm-hmm. I I cringe a little bit at that at times because especially with younger kids, they they're so literal. Well, your heart doesn't believe it pumps blood, you know. So I'm careful about ask Jesus into your heart and that sort of thing. I mean, those are those are fine if you explain what you mean. But yeah, there is a sense in which. Uh, my dad was a perfect example. He 
he uh, yeah he believed that the Bible's true and Jesus was the Son of God, but he wasn't saved. <laughs> it wasn't until he appropriated that belief to his own sinful condition and put his faith in Christ for his sin. That's I think the full sense of belief that you're talking about, and that's probably what all of us understand it to be. I want to add. Okay, I just want to add something. I feel like um, when he's talking about knowledge, he's talking about like truth that cannot be proven wrong. So with what his illustration was, like you believe your car's out of gas, you don't know that for sure unless you oh, what are you doing? Unless you like open and see there's no gas, because it could just be your car lights wrong. So you believe your car needs gas. Sure, the but gauge the gauge could be sure the gauge could be broken, right? right. It doesn't mean it's absolute. I feel like he was referring to belief and right, like a very like informal sense and knowledge is like an absolute truth. That's what I thought. Yeah, we're we're going to get deeper into this as we go along, chapter by chapter. And I'm glad you're you're kind of thinking ahead and. You've already dropped a few hints that there are very few things about which we can say we have 100% certainty that is philosophically 100% certainty. Uh, but it might be 99.99%, and that's plenty good enough. In fact, for belief in God, I'd say that 10% is good enough. And Pascal's wager would, I would bank on that. But we'll get into that. All right, so... The chapter coming up you're going to read, and there's a lot more in the chapter than what I can present tonight, but I'm just going to hit the highlights. Where does knowledge come from? Five possible sources. One is reason, and that's historically where it started with um, Plato and uh, the ancient philosophers that you'll read about them in the, in the book. Uh, and then the second heading in the book, is experience, and that would include uh, our sense experience, as well as in modern in modern uh, way of thinking, things that we might learn through experimental method, and then testimony, revelation. And then the last one, note, I said these are five possible sources. That's, that's, <clears throat> that's the, uh, the author's terminology, too. So, reason, experience, testimony, revelation, and then faith. So, let's look at these one at a time here. Um, reason or sometimes referred to as rationalism. And rationalism has a negative connotation probably in many people's minds because we tend to think of someone rationalizing as an ex- uh, using an excuse for a bad decision they might made or um, maybe something they maybe something they did uh, did wrong some Bad behavior. Uh, yes, officer, I I saw this sign out of the corner of my eye and it said 80 and I just thought that was the speed limit. 
you know, that, that's probably not going to fly. Okay, so uh, another term for it, knowledge acquired prior to experience is really what reason uh, in the philosophical sense refers to. It's called a priori. So it's knowledge acquired prior to experience. Um, And rationalists, in the strict sense of the word, are skeptical of knowledge gained through the senses. This was Plato and Socrates and even more contemporary philosophers. And so they, they felt the mind using reason uh, is the most reliable means to discover truth. And they would reason in their, in their mind, this must, be the, this must be the way it is. And one of the things that they uh, thought of was, well, what is everything made out of? And they would reason that things are made of smaller and smaller things. In fact, even somebody uh, coined the term atom, <laughs> but they didn't have in mind the atom as we understand it from physics, but that things were made of these tiny little atoms and there were different kinds of atoms. But it came from it came from this uh, just trying to imagine how things are. And so... These are the names of some uh, well-known rationalists. Plato, Socrates, Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza. The last three being more modern. And then formal reasoning takes the form of a syllogism. And I don't know if we'll have time at the end, but we might be able to discuss uh, a little bit of deductive reasoning and give you an illustration of what a syllogism is if you, you some of you probably already know okay the second area that we're going to read about in the book is experience or empiricism you often will see the term empirical data experimental data or data acquired through um, surveys or taking uh, a poll, uh, political polls, attempt to gain some kind of data, empirical data. So we <clears throat> we rely, uh, actually, all of us rely on our uh, on our senses to gain knowledge about the world around us. It's a key uh, a key component of acquiring knowledge and a lot of times the um, the data that we gain we talked about um, looking at the the gas gauge on the dashboard the, the gauge is actually doing the measurement but we're using our visual sense to get the information from the mechanical device and so our sense data is not just our own immediate sense, but it's uh, secondary through instruments and other things that have 
been devised to measure things that we can't get immediate sense data from. Make sense? Sense. Okay. <laughs> well, there's hard empiricism, and those that hold to this say that knowledge comes only from the senses. And I find that kind of problematic because uh, when you get this knowledge, then you have to do something with it. And it seems like you have to fall back on reason <laughs> to some extent to, uh, to really use this knowledge. And then there's soft empiricism that holds that most knowledge comes from the senses. This seems more reasonable. And the scientific method relies on empiricism to discover truths about nature. And we all know about that. So, here's something that <clears throat> I don't know if uh, anybody else has... I'm not going to claim that this is original with me. But I can't recall having read it or heard it from somebody, but maybe I have some place in the distant past. Um, but Daniel chapter 1 is, uh, I think, a fascinating, not just a fascinating story, an a inspiring story, and, a, and one that brings glory to God and demonstrates His uh, intervening on Daniel's behalf, but um, I skipped a couple of verses here just to fit it in, but here we seem to have a uh, an example of the modern scientific method, which had not really been developed until the 16th or 17th century. So Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And we skip a couple verses, but uh, Daniel, of course, was a devout Jew and he would not eat the king's meat or drink his wine because of the, probably because of the dietary laws in, in the Mosaic, in the Mosaic uh, laws, that he would not do that. And so he sets up a test. He says, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give, give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all of the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. I'm going to skip a couple more verses here. And in all matter, matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in it, all in his realm. So, <clears throat> scientific method is these four or five steps. Observe, hypothesize, test, infer, and then repeat one through four if necessary. All right, so how does this work into the chapter, the passage here? Well, observe <clears throat> Daniel's appearance before and after testing. So we have observation. 
And then what about the hypothesis? Well, yeah, hypothesize that Daniel's diet will be healthier than the king's diet. And then we have the test. Two, group, <clears throat> two groups. One, a diet of vegetables. <clears throat> the other, a diet of meat for 10 days. Nothing like having a control group, right? I mean, medical tests are done, medical research is done this way for drugs and whatnot. And then the inference is that <clears throat> Daniel's diet is healthier than the king's diet. Now, we have some other examples in, in Scripture of <clears throat> tests, but uh, this one is just so, it's, it's laid out so well. And of course, the test was <clears throat> ultimately that God would perform these uh, changes in Daniel and the uh, his brother, fellow Jews, that that God actually did this to uh, display and to give Daniel uh, some credibility, a lot of credibility with the king. So I'm not going to say there was anything magic about the vegetables, but it was God's, God's doing. But the interesting thing, I think, is that uh, here we have a pretty good... Uh, formulation of the scientific method 1,200 years ahead of its time. Anybody think of anything else that might fit in that category in the Bible? I think this is the best one I could think of, but how about Elijah's test of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? That was a test. I don't know that we can... I haven't really looked at it to find all of these elements, but um, anyway, for what it's worth, it's a freebie. I thought it was kind of neat. <clears throat> then the third category is testimony. Remember Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. And we had the Bereans in Acts 17. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So the Bereans, okay, we're gonna we'll believe that, but um, we're gonna verify. We're gonna look in Scripture and to verify that, uh, yeah, what they're what they're telling us is true. So <clears throat> testimony relies on the claims of others for the acquisition of knowledge, either their direct sense data or their reliance on someone else. And we have to weigh our our uh, our the claims that we hear from other folks. We have to, we have to weigh them carefully if the decisions are important. It'd be one thing to I think the authors use in the book: you're driving, you can't see out the right side, so you ask the passenger next to you, "Can you see anything coming?" Um, it's not real practical to stop, turn off the engine, get out of the car, and Stick your head out in the intersection and see if something's coming and get back in the car and start it up and get hit by a truck. Okay. So we have to weigh the testimony carefully if the, if the decisions are important. And as you all know, in, in court, 
testimony is a, is a key element in deciding a case. And something that's very important if you watch Perry Mason or any of the um, shows about law and order and that sort of thing, the credibility of a witness is very important. But, you know, when a, uh, even when a known liar tells the truth, the truth is still the truth. Though a person who doesn't have a reputation for telling the truth is going to have a hard time convincing folks that he is telling the truth. So that's where some other things may come into, uh, into play. Let's see. Oh, let's see. John twenty twenty nine. Doubting Thomas. Uh, what did Thomas do? He said he wouldn't believe unless he put his hand in the wound that Christ had risen from the dead, that Christ was alive. And so he wanted... Uh, he wanted uh, sensory <laughs> evidence. But Jesus chided him in a way, not for blind, you know, not for exercising, for not exercising blind faith, but for doubting the testimony of his reliable uh, fellow apostles, fellow disciples. And that's what we have now is a reliable testimony in the Word of God. We don't have Jesus. We can't put our hand in his side and and uh, determine that. But we have a reliable witness. All right, the authors uh, give a pretty good method here. Instead of category, categorically dismissing testimony as a source of knowledge, however, they say the more prudent approach would be to seek other forms of validation or confirmation about the report if there are reasons to be suspicious of the testimony. And he says, this is sometimes referred to as the method of triangulation. I'd never heard that before, but that that makes sense. If you think about a triangle as a closed figure, and you have one point, and you can navigate to another point, and then navigate to another point and close the triangle, you at least have uh, confirmation in some in some form of, of uh, in some either some form or other other testimony or other evidences that you can put together. So my. Uh, Sometimes you can't believe a testimony, though. Uh, my grandmother told me I was re- related somehow to the famous author, and that uh, my great grandfather lived up in in uh, Upper Peninsula of, in Michigan, and that he was a big shot, and owned a copper mine. Well, there's a lot of copper mining up in in uh, Upper State, Upstate, Upper Peninsula in Michigan, and so recently I. Well, they, and she said, yeah, he was a big shot when he come to Detroit for a meeting and all, they'd roll out a red carpet for him. Well, I've been on Ancestry and trying to learn some things about my family history and 
uh, I've come to the conclusion that I'm no relationship whatsoever to the famous author. And not only that, but I've tried to find out as much as I can about Houghton, Michigan, and on, on Tonigan, Michigan, and about the copper industry. And I suspect that my great-grandfather, if he had any, any connection with copper mines, he probably worked in a copper mine. And if there, if there was any truth to the carpet that he walked on, it was probably something they rolled out for him to wipe his dirty boots on. So, love my grandma, but, you know, I think she just uh, swallowed a big one there when her first husband gave her that line. All right, next. Revelation. We all know what this is. Uh, general revelation. We know that a creator must exist through reason. Uh, we can come to the, understand that even some of his attributes, uh, what, what he's like. So Romans 1, 18-20, you know that one. The two psalm references. Then special revelation, we know what that is. That's the Holy Scriptures. But a lot, a lot of times we overlook that it was... Uh, the key revelation is the Lord Jesus Himself. And that He came uh, in as the God-man, the perfect God-man, and walked among us. Alright, so we, we have that down, I think, pretty pretty solidly. And then we come to faith. And I've got a little extra supplemental handout to give you. And uh, just take one and pass them around. You can add that to your notebook and read it at your leisure. But faith is not, it's not blind faith as some people seem to indicate. Uh, especially atheists, they, they use that as a straw man argument against uh, Christians, and then, of course, you have in the media we have people of faith, people of faith, and it, it's it's a pretty difficult uh, false idea to overcome. But Hebrews eleven one tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Substance and evidence. It's not a blind faith. It's, uh, it's faith is not believing. Faith is not believing in the unknown. It's just simply believing in the unseen. That makes sense. Okay, we believe in electricity, and we don't see it unless it arcs or something. But um, we believe in photons, but we've never really seen a photon, what we see is is energy of various frequencies. We see the evidence of them, but we don't actually see the material thing. Alright, so it says we walk by faith, not by sight, but that doesn't mean that we walk blindly. Okay? So the Authors give this uh, 
this statement to discount faith as a source of knowledge. Some people say, well, I know it by faith. Well, I think the authors have a good point here. Faith, when properly understood, is a response to knowledge, but not a source of it. Would you all agree with that? Pastor Drew? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Because yeah, anybody can say that they have faith in anything they want. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you could say, well, I have faith that I visited hell or this, I visited heaven or whatever, like it's talking about this article. But that doesn't make it true. Right. Just because it's true to you and you believe it doesn't mean it actually happened. Yeah, we'll get to the true for you, not true for me thing eventually in the book. All right, so um, I have another one. It's not in your handout here. This is from a uh, an article I found on uh, Sean McDowell's website a few years ago. He says, A faulty understanding of faith and reason. Some time ago, my father and I were speaking at a student conference in the southeast. I wonder where that was. Noticeably upset, a young female youth worker approached us afterwards and essentially said, I wish you guys had a more biblical view of faith. We don't need evidence. Real faith involves believing something without proof. And then she stormed away. Sadly, this young lady had bought the idea that faith involves believing something blindly without evidence. If she were right, then apologetics would be frivolous. But the Bible both teaches and models a different view of faith. Simply put, evidence is offered to give people a confident faith. And he gives some scriptural references there. All right. Let's see. What time is it? Oh, i got a couple of minutes. So, um, I played this video the other night for the uh, part of my trail life lesson. I thought, well, if i got time, maybe the class tonight would would uh, appreciate it this is the cosmological argument and i got this video from reasonable faith dr william lane craig's site he's done about hmm, six or eight of these and i think they're all very good and so let's see well, mike if you got the remote right there we'll do a sound check if it uh, doesn't if it doesn't play loud enough when i hit the button here uh, you can Step it up. Whoops. What's going on? I guess I have to... There we go. Good. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? 
Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible, then, that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Okay. Pretty good. <clears throat> Any questions? Hello. Another little point of interest, Aristotle, familiar with, he reasoned that the universe must have had some unmoved mover or an uncaused cause. This is 350 years before Christ. And he also reasoned that the agent must be eternal and immaterial and infinitely powerful. Now, what he didn't come to conclude, perhaps because of his polytheistic culture, um, was that God was a, was a uh, personal agent. And uh, 
even for even for him it's it's kind of surprising that he didn't come to that conclusion because if there was nothing and something at some point uh, we say in the eternal in eternal past well time began with the universe and if there was a state without time and without matter without energy that state uh, to be initiated would require an agent to push the button so to speak to bring things in so agency is a is a personal thing a force uh, an equation, the law of gravity, these things can't do anything on their own. Uh, many of, of Plato's students uh, were, were taught that such things as numbers and even morals, propositions, that these things existed uh, independently, that they even existed independent of the universe. If the universe didn't exist, there would still be numbers. These were self-existent things. Uh, as a well, some Christian these are called abstract objects, and there are some Christians that believe in abstract objects, but that that's kind of problematic. In that if there's something outside of God that's self-existent, then God could not be the greatest conceivable being. He has to be the only self-existing thing. So it's a philosophical contradiction to hold that something other than God is self-existent. And we don't have time to discuss the Euthyphro dilemma, but that that's that goes back to Aristotle's time. You familiar with the Euthyphro dilemma, Pastor Drew? All right. Well, see if we can fit that in another time. It goes along with uh, moral argument and some other uh, neat logical things that Christians can use to defeat probably one of the one of the greatest op. Uh, opposing viewpoints to theism and that's why why evil and suffering all right let's close in prayer and we'll be on our way anything anybody need to say or ask or like let something out no okay let's pray father in heaven we thank you for your goodness to us we thank you that uh, we can have uh, scholars such as the authors of, the, of this book and others who have studied hard to um, help us to strengthen our faith and to give us ways to answer the scoffers and the skeptics that uh, we may encounter and, and even our own doubts that may come upon us at times. Uh, we are... Uh, we are just uh, weak people and sinners and we have mental and reasoning faults and, and uh, even disabilities in that sense that uh, 
we need help in those areas. And Lord, we thank you for providing for us in those ways and, and so many others. Bless this group and bring us back next week. In Jesus' name, amen.